1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chasing Tales Outdoors podcast. I am your host, and I'm joined by Chase from across the state. Dude, we are bringing them an awesome episode this week. Yes, we are. We got the man, the myth, the legend,
2: uh, Mr. John Eberhart on. Uh, he, he's been in the podcast realm. Everybody kind of uh, knows who he is, even from his books or YouTube, TV, all that stuff. So it was great having him on and to get to listen to him talk a little bit maybe about what could be applicable to Florida with what he does.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think we were able to draw some real, like, southern connections. You know, it's, it's difficult when you're on the phone. Um, it's even worse when you're trying to, you know, educate people. But, you know, it's difficult to be like, oh, well, I'd go in this area, I'd do X, Y, and Z. He did a really good job, though, of articulating what, if you're in the woods, like what questions you should put in your mind – so that you can you can assess the situation regardless of the geographical or biological features you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, he did.
2: Like I said, there there were several times in there where he mentioned just simple things that anybody can
1: go out and do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good simple questions. I I, I read his book back in January, February, and it completely uh, altered the way that I approach the woods uh, from a you know a, a deer hunting approach that is. And I've been looking forward to this episode for months, and it didn't it didn't disappoint me at all. I think this is a great uh, episode that people are really going to enjoy. If you haven't read uh, any of Eberhardt's books, it's uh, the one I'm re- referencing specifically is bow hunting pressured whitetails. I-, I think it applies to Florida on a huge level. I think there's some tips in there and some some components that uh, may apply more to Florida than people would care to realize, just because of the way that he approaches. Uh, high pressured areas. I mean, dude, as he was talking, I'm I'm like eliminating spots off the top of my head. Just like I'm never going back to that area again.
2: Yeah, yeah. He definitely he he gave you some uh, some solid advice. I would say on uh, basically yeah. you need to avoid the areas that uh, you've been going to <laughs> uh, yeah. if you want your success rate. He to all go but up. said stop going there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: So yeah, no, it's it, it's a good episode. It's a fun episode. Man, we laughed a lot. In fact, this is the first time that I've ever laughed and and caught a cable and pulled the Zoom recorder <laughs> and everything off the table. <laughs> the the it, John's got a good sense of humor, and and uh, it, it's a fun episode. This is that's how we need to say it. This was a fun educational episode. So. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll let John do the rest of the talking for himself in, 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 in the coming minutes. But why don't we go ahead and thank everybody and give everybody another reminder of, of some of the events that we've got coming down the pipe. Um, uh, first and foremost, you got our Patreon subscribers. These guys contribute on a monthly basis. We thank you for doing so. And one of the ways that we say thank you is we're giving away a tethered phantom saddle with mini versus straps a backband a hiss hauler're we're, we're, we're loading you guys up thanks to our partners at tethered if you haven't already go to their website tetherednation.com they are the one-stop shop for all things saddle related oh yeah and John he he's a big saddle hunter you'll
2: hear that in the podcast yep. and uh, he mentions tethered and he also mentioned coming out with a, what a signature series type saddle himself yeah so yep, be on the lookout
1: yeah I'm excited. I'm really excited, and, and on top of that, you know, John's part of the, the the tethered team. He's also coming out with his own YouTube channel. He throws there at the end, which is freaking awesome because it's one thing to read it, it's one thing to hear it, but now you're going to be able to, you know, see him breaking down areas. I, 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 man, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think it was Eberhard Outdoors or something. Him and his Eberhard son Outdoors. Is we're what he putting said. together. Yep. Sons were putting
1: together a YouTube Joey, series. I think. Yeah. So yeah, that mm-hmm. that'll be great. Yeah. And lastly, it is not too late. Stop what you're doing after I tell you what to do. (laughs) And sign up for the Yak and for Bass Challenge, dude. This is a charity fishing event. It's low stakes, low odds, five longest fish from a kayak, canoe, or stand-up paddleboard. And you get entered for some awesome prizes. We are really, actually, I'm excited, dude. We've got 30 people registered right now during a global pandemic. And I am stupid excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I mean, it
2: kicks off to tomorrow, so I'm going to be out there fishing, uh, yep. hoping to land those what it was it the five twenty four inch bass or something that I was <laughs> I'm supposed to land for bold prediction wise <laughs> yeah. or something insane. Yep, yep, yep. probably not going to happen, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best, and uh, I look forward to uh, fishing with everybody and uh, looking at the Facebook page and um, interacting yeah. with everybody, and and actually I'm planning on meeting up with several people so I think it's gonna be a great time so like I said you still got time you got that two-week buffer so if you're interested now's the time to do
1: it absolutely and the only thing I'm worried about is making sure I outfish Derek again he's coming into town and we're gonna be fishing this tournament up on Lake Seminole to kick this thing off so guys sign up you have you haven't already and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode All right, folks, we are recording with a guest that I have been eager since about end of January, early February when his book was recommended to me. And I can honestly say that having read it, I feel like all the puzzle pieces that I had assembled as a deer hunter have started to coalesce and start to make sense. I'm sure I don't apply everything that he he speaks about near as well as he does. But uh, maybe one day I'll get there. John Eberhardt is on the line. John, I really appreciate you taking time to, to join us and talk Whitetails.
3: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the offer. And uh, I, I will say this, it, it's uh, Florida's a tough state because in the three <laughs> books that I've written every year, we've every time we wrote a book with my son, we did statistics. And uh, Florida just does not enter very many P&Y bucks into the record book, I think. I think the year we did our first book, Pressure white Whitetail there was zero uh, that year entered in the p book and I think when we did our next book, um, there was two so it's a tough that's definitely a tough state.
1: <laughs> well I, I hope uh, this episode changes that because our, our our base is predominantly Florida listeners by and large so uh, maybe maybe all we're missing is, is is some wisdom that you can share with us. <laughs>
3: Well, you always have to keep in mind you uh, you know if if you're a really good hunter, you hunt the best bucks that are available. And Florida is just not known for having sure. that many bucks that hit that 125 status. So you can't kill what doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I, I I've spent a lot of time chasing in, in in previous years chasing things that didn't exist, and I had chase chases helped me kind of narrow my focus onto what's reasonable. So um, for for our listeners. Good. Go ahead, John.
3: I was just gonna say that's good. You gotta keep things in perspective to where you're hunting.
1: So for our listeners who may not be familiar with your books, why don't you kinda of give everybody a breakdown as maybe who you are and, and the books that you've written and what the, what they're on?
3: Well, I'll give you a little I'll give you a brief bio. Um, I've been bull hunting for over fifty seasons. Um, I bull hunt I'm from Michigan and Michigan has since there's been records kept of license, boning license sales, Michigan's been the uh, most heavily bow hunted state in the country. We have more bow hunters than any other state always has. Um, and I've got 31 bucks in the Michigan record book. And I've also went, I don't, because I don't gun hunt, I started going out of state in 1997. And on 23 out of state, one week hunts out of state. I've taken 19 pulp young books and um, the 31 I've taken in Michigan were off 19 different properties in 10 different counties. And then 19 book books I've got from out of state were, were from uh, five different States and 13 different properties. So, so I think what separates, I don't think <laughs> cause there, there are, uh, there, there's lots of hunters that have several bucks in the record book with a bow. Uh, obviously, every TV personality does, but what separates my accomplishments of having a, a cumulative total of 50 from anybody else in the country that I know of is 100% of all of my hunting and all the deer I've ever shot have been off either public land or knock on doors for free permission properties, and I've never hunted over bait. I've never hunted managed property, no relatives' property, never paid the dime to hunt any place in my life. So I can't think of any other bow hunter that's got that many bucks in the record book from just public and free free permission properties. And in uh, 2003, my, with my son Chris, who's now almost, well, he's 49, and we wrote three books. The first one was Boning Pressured Whitetails. That was in 2003. And then we wrote Precision Bow Hunting in 2005, and in 2010 we wrote Bow Hunting Whitetails the Eberhardt Way. And I believe that the uh, Bow Hunting White Whitetails, the first book we ever wrote, it has been the best-selling bow hunting book ever printed. Uh, and it's it's strictly an instructional book, um, uh, you know, and it's about hunting pressured whitetails, you know, because I live in Michigan. And everything I do is public and free knock-on doors where there's always other hunters. Um, you know, it's about hunting pressured whitetails. Because, like, when I go out, when I went out of state, and you know, like Kansas, Iowa, Illinois, I, just, I will see as many open young bucks usually in a week in those states as I will in five years in Michigan hunting the whole season. It's just so much easier. There's just so many mature bucks because there's so little hunting pressure. And the people out there, because there are so few people, they pass on bucks. You know, they kind of target bigger bucks, so a lot more bucks grow to maturity, and and it's just it's just much easier. They're they're not as smart. They're you know they allow a lot of human scent. They'll move a lot in the daytime, even when they smell some semblance of human odor, and and uh, they accept a lot more human intrusion stuff than they do in heavily pressured states like a Michigan or a PA. West Virginia New York places where, you know, there's, you know, 10 or 15 bow hunters per square mile.
1: Wow. You know, I, 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 found a lot of similarities as I read that book, as you described things, I found a lot of similarities to here in Florida in very different ways. You know, you, you talk about, you know, heavily pressured around here access is so abundant to even our, our, our public lands that it just, it, it, it it translated so well for me. It was very interesting to hear how you went about approaching whitetails, you know, across the country. You know, we're almost in polar opposites, basically, but it, it seemed to, to translate so well. What what was that learning curve like initially, as you're trying to put the pieces together? How long did it take applying these principles before you really started to see um, a, a change in your hunts?
3: Uh, I'd say, uh, obviously like anybody else when I start, well, I shouldn't say that nowadays because nowadays management is such a big deal. A lot of, a lot of kids nowadays if they're hunting on their family's man, micromanaged properties, they don't target anything other than three-year-olds starting right out of the block. But back when I started just killing a deer with a bow was a big deal in the sixties. I mean, 2% of bow hunters back then killed a buck with a bow and about 7% killed a deer with a uh, now it's about 25 percent kill a buck with a bow and about 40 percent kill a deer with a bow so it's changed dramatically but back then when I first started you know I would target any deer it, it, if it were a fawn I was shooting at it you know when I was a teenager in the 60s and then I got to the point where I was just targeting you know does and and, and any antlered buck and then it got to the point where by about the mid-70s, I'd say, mid, yeah, about 75, I moved up to northern Michigan, and I started targeting two-and-a-half-year-old bucks. And two-and-a-half-year-old bucks are were kind of rare commodities. I mean, that sounds kind of strange in this day and age, but we had a million gun hunters at that time, and they shot any legal antlered bucks. So there wasn't a lot of bucks that made it to two-and-a-half, and very, very few made it to three-and-a-half. So, uh, you know, I started targeting two and a half year olds, and and once in a while I'd I'd you know kill a three and a half or four and a half year old, uh, and then by the mid nineties management, you know, a lot of people were passing up on deer, so I started seeing more three and a half and four and a half year olds, um, and obviously that's what I started targeting. But I, I changed the way I hunted. Yeah, you guys in Florida and Georgia, because. I'm a saddle hunter. I've hunted exclusively from a saddle since 1981. I'm I'm kind of called the godfather of saddle hunting, and I'm on Tethered <laughs> Pro Staff, and I'm coming out with a new uh, signature saddle this fall. Uh, and Greg, one of the owners of Tethered, he lives in Georgia, and he has hunted in Florida. And you guys have just a, different types of challenges. you got the heat to deal with. You've got... Just tremendously heavy under, understory, you know. As far as cover, you got to walk through because you know you're in low ground and and you know everything grows so fast down there. And you don't really have any dead months like we do up north in the winter. Um, and, and the heat, you know, I, I can't even fathom having to deal with <laughs> 85 degree heat to bow in bowl on hand because I'm a huge set control freak. You know, I'm an activated carbon guy and Obviously, if you're perspiring a lot, it's much, much more difficult to control your scent because you are perspiring. So you guys have a whole different uh, level of uh, things against you than what we do up here.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been out bow hunting in like 95 degrees before. Like, it, I can't even fathom it, that. N- 95. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't even want to go lay in the yard. When it's <laughs> never, you know, let alone move. <laughs> right, right. I
2: mean, there there's been points where I've I've literally worn shorts and a T shirt out hunting. Um but Just, and probably messing everything up. I mean, especially in my early (laughs) days, not even, I mean, when I first started hunting, I was, I was a noob, you know what I mean? I wasn't even paying attention to things like wind direction and stuff like that. I was just out there to be out there hoping to luck upon a deer. And then as I matured more, I started figuring things out and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely difficult, especially early season. I've even been thinking here, I was like, man, if it's almost pointless sometimes to even be out there because the deer aren't even moving that much when it's 95 degrees outside either. Um, They will because they're a little bit adapted because they're Florida deer because they're not 250 pounds or whatever. They're 150, 160 pounds down here. So they'll still move around some. But uh, even, I mean, even when we're hunting in October, uh, sometimes in November, it's still, I mean, even it'll still get up into the high 70s. Uh, a lot of days when you, when you're out hunting as well, even during like the prime time when they're rutting down here. So it's definitely a challenge for sure, especially getting to the tree. If you're going to walk any distance to get to the tree, I mean you're you're soaked in sweat by the time you get there.
3: Yeah, and that's it is so hard to have a scent control regimen, a good one when it's heat like that. And and I I am at the point where the first thirty five years I bow on it, I paid one hundred percent attention to wind direction and i hunted the wind exclusively and because of that there were locations you know rut phase locations that i wouldn't hunt because on the days that i had off work to hunt the wind direction was wrong and i never got to hunt my best locations but for the last um 17 18 years i i pay zero attention to the wind anymore but again i don't we don't have the perspiration levels you, you guys do <laughs> it right, most, right. most of the time when I'm hunting during you know uh, late October, November. We're talking you know it's going to be 25 degrees early in the morning, and you know it might get up to 45, possibly 50 during the day. So it's it's perfect hunting weather. I love that, and and even when it's raining, it's or snowing, it's not not that bad because you can dress for it. There's nothing you can do to dress for heat. And no. Other than hunt naked, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I can
2: imagine wearing an activated carbon suit out in ninety-something degrees. Probably have a heat stroke trying to get to the stand.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, and, and he definitely affects deer movement. I'll I'll never forget my son Chris went. Um, he wrote a book on his own, and uh, it's called Whitetail Access. It's not available anymore, but um, he he took off in his minivan because uh, we. I got my kids hunting out of minivans. I hunt out of a minivan. It's like a little motel room when you take all the seats out. (laughs) And he went on a six-week hunt uh, out of state. He visited six states in six weeks, spent a total of $2,300, and killed six P&Y class bucks in six different states on public land and knock on doors. Uh, But I remember when he was in Iowa, he went to Iowa, and he was hunting this, Really low ground down by down by a river, and it was 80 degrees. And the first two, and it was a spot that I had permission on. I'd got him in there because I he had free permission. First two days, he didn't see anything, and he was hunting all day. Uh, when I say anything, he saw a deer, but he didn't see anything decent. And uh, and then it got down to 35 degrees the next day as a high, so they had a huge temperature swing. He saw 11 different bucks from the same stand in one day. Mm. That's how big of a difference that temperature made in deer movements. Wow. He definitely has a lot to do with deer movements.
2: Oh, yeah. I'll notice that for sure down here because usually when we get like a southwest wind, that's usually when a warm front comes in. And I don't know how many times I've gone out and just seen absolutely nothing (laughs) when those come in. I'm like, why do I keep hunting these southwest winds? They they never seem to work out for me because, like I said, you'll have – It'll go back from being pretty nice in Florida to where, boom, you get this high temperature and it's like ghost town for you. So, yeah, I can't, yeah, I've seen it way too many times where, like I said, they just flat won't move.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say this I, I can't really say it about heat, but uh, I, I kind of enjoy hunting in Clement weather because there's one thing that's always a guarantee. Uh, no matter what the weather is, you're not going to kill anything on the couch. <laughs> so yep. so if, if the, if the weather permits you to get out in the field, and if you are hunting the wind, like you're doing, and the wind is right for the location you're hunting, um, you know, and you're hunting the location and the right time that it's designed for, you know, some stands are morning, some are evening, some are designed for early season, some are designed for rut phase locations. Uh, you know, as long as you're hunting it correctly, um, even if the temperature may be wrong, you're still more apt to kill a deer there than you would off the couch.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Then that's why I, that's why I always drag my butt out, <laughs> butt out there.
3: <laughs> I, I've had some hunts where I just struggled to get out of bed. One of my most memorable hunts was in Missouri. Only time I've ever hunted in Missouri. Uh, called called to order a plat book. You know, from a county county seat. Mm-hmm. And the girl that answered the phone at the county seat asked, uh, you know, I asked her, I said, you know anybody that, you know, they see people all the time. They know all the farmers. I said, hey, you wouldn't buy any chance to know anybody that'd let somebody come down there and bow on. Because I was just ordering a plat book for that county that I was going to look at and, you know, pull up some aerials online and then cold call some people for permission. She said, yeah, I know this guy, and he owns quite a lot of property, and he does let people hunt. He, she gave me his number. I called him, and he had 40 acres. He'd let me hunt. He had a bunch of property, but he had this one little 40-acre spot, and he told me I could hunt that exclusively because I was going to go down there during their gun season, So, and it was all bedding, and it was surrounded by crops, and uh, it rained the entire time I was there. It rained just a just a. Drizzle to a light rain, uh, not windy, and I hunted. Once I prepped the location, several locations, I moved around, but I hunted three days. From you know, I was in the stand an hour and an hour before daylight, and I didn't get out till dark. Three days in a row, and it was like a thirty minute drive back to my hotel motel. And uh, the fourth morning, and I had seen a big ten pointer at a distance, a monster ten point. So that was my drive to get me out of the bed this fourth morning. But I, I hit the snooze that fourth morning. The alarm went off at 3, and I'm going to bed at 11, so I've got major sleep deprivation. I hit the snooze three times, and finally I'm like, John, get your ass out of bed. And, well, you're not going to kill anything laying here, and that's what you're here for. And I shot that big 10-point that morning, but that was that was a gut-wrenching hunt because I was so tired hunting in the rain for three full days. <laughs> you just never know though, you know, that oh, fourth yeah. morning yeah. was the
1: morning. Everything came together. So I'm, I'm curious, John, you know, we talked, I think, I think we said this right before we we started, um, or maybe you, you, you mentioned this when you talked about how difficult it is down here, how I, I've never, I can't recall a time where I've heard you talk about trail cameras or, or relying on them heavily. How do you go about assessing what kind of quality bucks are on a property?
3: I just, I do all my scouting and all of my location preparation during postseason. So when I say postseason, I always wait till the snow melts, which you guys don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but as soon as the season's over, up in Michigan, you know, all the foliage is down. So as soon as the season's over and as soon as the snow melts, because usually in December we get snow and it usually doesn't melt till sometime in February or March. As soon as the snow melts, I go out and I look at the sign that's on the ground left over from the previous rut. I'm looking at scrape areas, licking branches. You know, I can still identify that's definitely last year's rub line. Uh, That's definitely last year's, you know, last fall's runways. Because when there's snow on the ground, the sign you see in the snow is meaningless because, once the season ends and we start getting deep snows, the deer will actually move down into lower lying ground to stay out of the cold winds, and they move they, they move in bed closer to the preferred winter feeding feeding areas because there's no hunting pressure. So I always wait till the snow is gone, and then I, I I scout the area and I look for I look for uh, up here. It's not uncommon to find you know, lost apple trees out in the woods, or I look for white oaks, I key on white oaks, I key on primary scrape areas, I look for uh, funnels, you know, pinch points in transition corridors between bedding and feeding, or pinch points of of transition, secure transition corridors between two bedding areas, and those are probably my favorite as far as pinch points, because during pre-rut and into the rut, you know, Mature bucks, you know, they will go from bedding area to bedding area searching for, you know, early estrus does or just estrus does in general during the rut. And obviously, uh, you know, if you're in a pinch point and it transitions on between two bedding areas, that's a really hot spot. Because most of the mature bucks up here, they're so heavily pressured. They don't go out into open crop fields during daylight hours. Year and a half and two and a half year olds, maybe. Three and a half year old and older bucks, they just don't go out in exposed areas during daylight hours. So, to me, areas between bedding and feeding are not that critical. So, I'm looking for, you know, apple trees, mass trees that are back within some form of security cover that also have transition security cover to a known bedding area. And I, and to explain kind of what that means, let's say there was you guys kept persimmon trees. I mean, what's your what's your mass tree that's the most preferred as far as a food
1: source uh i think it kind of depends on where you are in florida but i mean if you can find if you can find white oaks which is kind of scarce uh that that's preferred there are persimmons scattered across the way but the most reliable uh hard mass tree around here is just your live oak
3: okay so let's say you let's say you had a couple live oaks and they had good security cover around them where a mature buck would feel secure feeding at them during daylight hours. But let's say there's a bedding area that's 300 yards away, and the only thing between those live oaks and that bedding area is open timber with no understory. So in other words, a mature buck would have to get up out of the bedding area and walk through this open timber with no security cover to access those live oaks where there is security cover you know i wouldn't i would not set a location like that up even though there's live oaks uh, and that's a major feeding destination location mature buck at least in michigan i can't speak for florida they're up here uh, especially on public lands they're not going to walk through that open vulnerable timber where there's no understory or no security cover to access eating at those live oaks where they even though there is perimeter security cover around them they, they just won't make that vulnerable movement during daylight hours so everything i do is security cover oriented i if a place does if, a, if i find a location let's say i found a, a primary scrape area and it was on the edge of a crop field and that crop field was going to be in hay or beans there is absolutely no way i'd hunt it because a mature buck up here and in a lot of the heavier-pressured states in the Northeast, uh, they're just not going to go to a spot where they have a huge open visual because if they have an open visual, you know, there's an open visual to them as well, and they feel vulnerable. They always want to have a place where they have a quick exit security cover, you know, just one or two bounds and they're in security cover. So, so everything I do is security cover-oriented uh, in Michigan. Now, when I go out of state, you know, I've hunted in Iowa and Kansas and Missouri, which are much, much lighter hunted states than Michigan. It's not uncommon for, you know, I'll never forget the first time I went to Kansas. I'm driving down the road at noon, and here's a 150-inch eight-point walking across a winter wheat field that's two inches tall. He's walking right towards my van. I parked on the road, and he got within 50 yards of my van, and he saw me, and then he just turned around and walked away, and I'm talking about a winter wheat field that's like your lawn, that would never, (laughs) ever happen here. (laughs) Not in the daytime. They'd cross it at night, and, you know, that primary scrape area that's on the edge of that crop field, even though there's mature bucks hitting it, it's going to be after dark. If you want to kill a a year-and-a-half or two-and-a-half-year-old buck there, yeah, they might visit that in the daytime, but if you're after those true mature bucks that have been shot at, probably hit before, uh, they just don't make that they don't make those vulnerable mistakes, and that's why they're still alive.
4: Oh, yeah. To give
3: you an example of, just to give you a brief example of that, of the 31 book bucks I have in Michigan, 28 of them had previous wounds. Wow. Some of them, one of them had four different projectiles. He had two buckshot in his neck, he had a two and a quarter inch vortex sticking out of his left shoulder that had passed through the very top of his left lung on a downward shot. And that was old. That had been there at least a year. And he had a 12-gauge slug in his ass, you know, just inside the hide on his his left or his right uh, hindquarters. And so 28 of the bucks had had previous wounds from shots before, either bow or gun. And of the 19 bucks I've shot out of state, none of them had ever been touched. By another hunter's projectile so uh, that's the difference in hunting pressure and i can't speak for florida and georgia i know talking to greg georgia has quite a few hunters you know georgia has 150 somewhere 150 180 000 bow hunters which is quite a few that's about half as many as we have that's still a lot though and i would assume florida is probably similar pressure to georgia
2: yeah, Florida is not necessarily as high numbers, I wouldn't say. But like Walter was mentioned early earlier with the pressure aspect of it, like most of the public land that you go to has super easy access, like roads that you can drive down. And there's really nowhere you can get away from anybody because it, in between roads might be 500 yards or something small like that. So there's a lot of areas where, you, yeah, there's a there there's so much access to where there's not much there's nowhere you can really get away, and that's one of the things Walter has kind of been dealing with where he's at is it's just real difficult to get anywhere because someone could come in from the backside and only walk 200 yards uh, to get to where you're at, and you may have walked five or 600 yards uh, the other way. There's just nowhere to kind of get away from anybody based on. That right there is just because they let people drive in. There's not too many places where you you have to walk more than, what,
1: maybe a quarter mile, Walter, to, to get oh, to your spot? that's a dream. That's a dream. Quarter mile sounds like a dream. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That is interesting. I have never, ever heard that before. I, I mean, our public lands in Michigan, down in southern Michigan, uh, you know, they may be – Two miles by two miles. You get up into northern Michigan, there, hell, there may be 20 miles between roads. So you can definitely get away from hunters. And that's one thing that I do. I have, you know, when I'm scouting public lands, I have a rule that I never waver on. If I can walk to a location in my regular knee boots, standing up in an upright position, I I don't care how much sign there is, I won't set it up because I know I'll have company and screw me up. So I, I will only hunt public lands in Michigan where I have to use hip boots or waders or a canoe or a boat or crawl through on my hands and knees under brush, olive brush to access. So we are totally, totally different than what you've got.
2: Yeah. There's you so many. So you've
3: many... got. Yeah. I, I have hunted, I have scouted some public lands in Michigan because I think I've hunted 17 different public properties and I've killed bucks on 13 different public properties in Michigan but I have scouted some other ones because we got a lot of public land where it just wasn't conducive for mature buck daytime movements. Um, it just didn't have the adequate security cover. It didn't have places I could get away from the other hunters. So I just abandoned it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to waste my time there because I, it would just require too many hunts for me to even have a small percentage of the possibility to kill a mature buck just because, I would have other hunters on top of me all the time because there was nothing to separate me from them as far as difficulty to access where I was hunting. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah we're,
1: we're at. at, we're at there, go, ahead, right, go ahead, Walt. Well, I was just gonna say the the reason for that, John, is because most of our public lands down here are um, um, pine rows where they are trying to harvest the wood, you know, to probably offset, you know, public land costs if if it's state lands and whatnot. And so as a result, you have all these logging roads that crisscross everything. Um, I I kind of, I've kind of always maintained that it's kind of a bit of a failure on, on the management side to, I mean, and I'm not exaggerating here. There was a 500 acre block, uh, two turkey seasons ago, maybe three that I was turkey hunting and I walked in from the South side, a a true, you know, 90 degree angle block of wood. Uh, And as I get inward, there's a guy on the North side. So I'm like, well, to heck with it. I'll go west. I bump, I bumped two hunters. I went east. I bumped two more hunters. And when I drove around the block, there was a truck on all four corners of, of of that block of timber. And and that's just the way it is on so much of this land down here. And I think that's one of the areas I, I kind of struggle with a lot of the advice that's given because getting away from someone I think means something different in Florida than it does other places. I can't really put distance between people. And I think that's where I started to really hone in on what you were saying earlier, that security cover. And I was, I was kind of hoping I could pick your brain on that a little bit more because a lot of what we have here is very um, dense. Like you said earlier, the undercover, the understory is very, very dense. And I was curious if you could give myself and other people who encounter that some advice on differentiating what, a deer might prefer in those situations maybe out of your own experience
3: i can make that so simple for you what you have to do and this is what i do all the time you have to simply pretend all the hunters have guns all the other hunters have guns and they're trying to kill you (laughs) where are the only places you're going to go on that property where you might consider getting up and moving during daylight hours. If there's no places on that property where you would consider doing that, there's no sense hunting there.
1: Well, so you would, you would completely abandon some, some pieces of public based on that criteria?
3: Oh, I've, I've abandoned many pieces of public just after I scouted them without preparing anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't like wasting my time if I'm hunting a place that doesn't have the adequate security cover for a mature buck to move during daylight hours uh, and every, and also it it's totally conducive for other hunters to easily hunt the same areas and scout and hunt the same spots I am without having to work at it by using a canoe or waders or hip boots. Yeah. The odds of me killing something decent is seriously low and I, I've got better things to do with my time than waste it like that. I would, I would just keep scouting until I found something where, keep, keep that in mind. That is probably the best way to put it. Pretend everybody else that's hunting that public property is trying to kill you. They're out there to shoot you. Because that's what a mature buck's perspective is. He's He's been shot at. He's probably been wounded. And he's trying to go places where hunters are not. So you have to think to yourself, is there any place on this property that's conducive for me to get up and move during daylight hours without getting shot by one of these hunters? If you pretend they're all trying to kill you, then you won't waste your time setting up in places where mature bucks probably aren't going to move either. And there's also a very good likelihood if, if there's a lot of public land and it's none of it's conducive for you know security cover, There's probably not any big bucks on the property anyway. You know, you might have a a two-and-a-half-year-old, but you're probably not going to have any three-and-a-half or older bucks because it's just too easy. They can't move during daylight hours without getting shot. Sure. So there's no reason to hunt there. You can't just say, well, I'm close to this public land, so this is where I'm going to lay my foundation, and this is the only place I'm going to hunt. I don't have any place to hunt within forty minutes of my house. My closest spots, forty minutes from my house, where I've got free wow. permission properties, and most most of my hunting's two and a half hours from home.
4: Gosh,
1: Chase. I mean, I, I mean, I think he's kind of saying the same thing or a similar thing that you said to me last year. You know, having to abandon some of those pieces here, it, it was difficult for me, but it, it sounds like it was the right call.
3: Why hunt something that doesn't exist? I mean, (laughs) why hunt something if there's nothing there that you want to shoot more than likely? And also, if there were something that you wanted to shoot, everybody else has the same access to it. And odds are it's not going to get up and move during daylight hours because it doesn't have the adequate security cover. Right. Keep in mind, the bucks are thinking the exact same way. They're going to go into the security cover, back into the bedding areas, where the densest areas on the property, where they might feel comfortable moving during daylight hours. And when I say mature, it might be a two and a half year old. That might be the best buck on the property. Um, that's what we were talking about earlier. You know, you have to, you have to put your kill criteria in perspective with where you're hunting. If if you're hunting an area that's not conducive to having bucks live to three and a half years old then you better target two and a half year olds you know that's why these tv guys are a joke you know they pass up 150 bucks 150 inch bucks and well we'll we'll shoot them you know we'll let them grow another year i I think that's just ludicrous because those guys are like hunting in a zoo you know they go out and they sit in these picked cornfields and these big bucks come out that's just That's just so unrealistic to real hunting. That just doesn't happen unless you're in a zoo a zoo type setting and I try to put that into this perspective. You know, a lot of guys look up to these T V guys when in reality I don't think they're very good hunters at all. You know, I I know some T V guys that came from Michigan and they couldn't kill hundred inch bucks in Michigan and now they're killing hundred and sixty and eighty inch bucks every year. They couldn't kill a 100-incher when they lived here and hunted all year. Now they're going <laughs> right. to five states and killing big bucks every year. And when you put it into this perspective here, it kind of lays the foundation for it. You take, you take guys like uh, Phil Mickelson, LeBron James, Tom Brady, um, you know Michael Phelps. Those guys competed against guys in high school. And then if they were good enough, they got a scholarship to go to college. And then if they were good enough, they they went and played pros. But the the common link that they always had was they competed against all of their competition on the same exact playing field. And deer hunting, we don't have that. We don't have everybody hunting the exact same playing field. Those guys That's why those TV guys hunt in Iowa and Kansas and Nebraska, because there's no hunting pressure out there. And there's no competition, and there's tons and tons of big bucks. And they, you know, there's a lot of mature bucks, and they vibe for breeding rights. Everything works calling, rattling, decoys, everything works. Um, You know, so, you know, while these sports icons have actually earned to be called icons of their sports because they've competed against everybody and beat them on the same exact courts, or football fields, or basketball courts, or swimming pools, the guys, on the tv shows they've competed against nobody absolutely nobody drury's when they used to have their bow hunting challenge none of those guys hunted on drury's property drury's never got in that competition if they had the same if they had some of those guys hunting on the same property they did they, they would very likely get smoked <laughs> that's why they didn't do it they want to hunt deer where there's no competition makes them look good uh so people that you know i i view people that Somebody that can kill a two and a half year old buck on public land on a regular basis every year, he's a badass hunter. He is a good hunter because he has to know how to hunt to kill deer where you're hunting against a lot of other competition and where there's not a lot of those mature bucks or, or bigger bucks around, you know, two and a half and three and a half. So that that kind of puts it in perspective. I guess another way to put it in perspective would be you could take if you get you guys being in Florida could understand this. You could take a novice fisherman, and he could go out behind some guy's uh, barn where he's got a farm pond that hardly ever gets fished, and he's going to go out there with whatever lure he can throw and probably going to catch some bass. You take that same bass fisherman, and you put him on a public lake that has some local tournaments and gets fished a lot on a daily basis just by the general public, he probably wouldn't catch illegal fish all day. So you have to put all the stuff in perspective, and for people that watch TV shows and and listen to those guys and take their instruction and assume when, what they're gonna what they do where they hunt's gonna work where they hunt, that's not gonna happen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. Right. Well, I think
3: another another thing, real quickly, to think about are you know are their wives and kids immediately experts when they go out and immediately when they're 10 years old, start killing 150 inch bucks.
1: (laughs) My next progression, like you're solving so many pieces for me. My next thought is, you know, you talk about that two-year-old, you know, the guy that goes out and heavily pressured and kills a two-year-old. Have you noticed in areas where you have a lot of one and two-year-old deer versus some that get to that three-year-old age point have you seen a huge difference in how you need to approach those deer because chase hunts a different part of the state than i do he's got you know he's got deer that hit that three four and five year old range and i'm just kind of curious how you would how your tactics would change based on where you were
3: well the older the deer get generally speaking when you're hunting pressured property the smarter they get the less they move during daylight hours so the the older the deer class when you're hunting bucks uh the more security cover oriented you have to be even when i go to states like iowa and kansas uh, i don't need to be i i kind of despec my hunting thought process when i go out there because i don't have to think like i think when i'm hunting in michigan i i kind of despec what i need to do because i can get away with a lot more because they move in open areas so it, it where where he's hunting and florida i'm sure there's a, quite a bit of pressure um, but if there's three and a half and four and a half and five and a half year old bucks and it is public land obviously there's places where there's a lot better security cover than where you're hunting and that's what you have to gravitate to
1: okay
3: big bucks just don't like i'm not saying they never move into open areas they will with a hot doe you know if they're with uh, actually a hot doe and she walks into the house your house he might follow her in you know uh, they do stupid things when they're physically with a hot dog, but but uh, that's that's a rarity when they're on their own typically they don't do stupid things to make them vulnerable during daylight hours uh, they' they're just they're just too smart for that
4: Oh, yeah. Well, so absolutely. gravitate
3: to security cover. Security cover, security cover. And <laughs> I'm not talking about being in the middle of a briar bush. I'm talking about just having security cover where they can move along the edge of. If you find a destination feeding location, it needs to have, you know, some form of perimeter exit security cover around it. And, again, it needs to have some form of transition security cover to a known bedding area for it to be conducive for a daytime visit. Um you know, you just, just pretend it's you. Just pretend it's you and everybody's trying to kill you. But but that's definitely what you need to do, Walter, is is you need to gravitate to places where those bigger bucks exist because you're not going to kill them where they don't. Right. You know, I, I struggle in Michigan. The last two years in Michigan, I, I haven't even seen a, a shooter buck. Um. So there's years in Michigan I don't – I haven't killed a buck in Michigan since 2017, so it's been two seasons. Um, you know, I've had years where I've killed, you know, filled both of my tags. That's another downside of Michigan. We're a two-buck state, which I I hate, you know. <laughs> so not only do we have 700,000 gun hunters now and 320,000 bow hunters, everybody's allowed to kill two bucks. So we don't have a lot of bucks to make reach maturity, at least on public land.
1: Well, what you'd next? really hate Florida. We're a five-buck state. I'm sorry. I said you'd really hate Florida. We're a five buck state.
3: Oh my god! <laughs> and the, well, most of your most the, of your big buck states like Kansas and <laughs> Illinois and Iowa and um, you know Wisconsin, uh, Ohio—they're all one buck states. So right, most of your right. big buck states, midwestern states, are all one buck. Nebraska, yeah, five bucks. Well, I think. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I. Alabama used to be a deer
2: a day, wasn't it? Well Florida Florida used to be two Florida just went to five bucks, John, this past season. We used to be two a day every day for the whole season. So it was basically a two hundred and forty buck state if you state wanted if you wanted, <laughs> if you wanted if to you get technical. Yeah, two a day every day. Wow That's what it that's what it used to be. So five. Did you, ever five fill your tags? No. Did you ever fill all your tags? No, I, no. I knew. I, 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 I didn't even. I couldn't even fathom killing two hundred and forty bucks in a season. You'd be a bloody
3: mess. I know that.
2: Oh my gosh, man! That broadhead bill even would keep be up crazy. With the no, no. Although there were some people that took that to heart. Uh, that they were. I mean, just, like you said, just outslaying everything that moved because yeah. you could, you could do it. Uh, back then. So we're just happy that they even went to five because I knew guys that, like I said, they would take that to heart and would shoot. If it was, they they might shoot a big 10 point one day and then a spike or something step out and then they would shoot it the next day. And I'm like, what are you doing? And you complain (laughs) about not seeing big deer. And then you just shot a big 10. Now you're shooting a spike the very next day. And it was just, just because they could uh, basically. And I'm like, okay, well don't complain about the amount of big bucks that we're seeing around here because you're out here waylaying every deer you see. (laughs)
3: Wow, that, that that is incredible. <laughs> you, you must have some nasty stuff down there to allow that many bucks. There's got to be some areas where there's some nasty stuff where deer can act, actually survive through
2: that. Right. Well, well, they tried to make it to where it was a three buck limit with two does. Like, cause, like I said, there was so many deer you could kill, but then we had dog hunters come into the equation because we've got a bunch of dog hunters down here. And they got irate about the, the three buck rule. So they actually made the they actually had a meeting and they changed it to where it was you could just kill five bucks as opposed to three. So yeah. So
3: I, I'm looking at some stats here from two thousand twelve, which is the last statistical data that I have in uh, two thousand twelve Florida had seventy three thousand six hundred and forty two bow owners,
1: licensed bow owners. Wow. Right.
3: right. Which is, which is actually quite a few for a state like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I
1: think what makes that pressure even worse is, um, you know, you have a – Chase kind of touched on it. You know, you have dog hunters, and uh, I know pl- I know several really good dog hunters. I'm not, you know, you're crapping on all of them, but it takes a lot of real estate to run dogs, and you end up with a lot of friction points where, I you know, Chase and I just last year experienced this firsthand where we're trying to go – hunt an area, and dog hunters are running dogs through it, and you know you can't control which way those dogs go. And so, what you have are huge swaths of public land that really are only suitable for dog hunting. And what it does is it pushes that seventy-three thousand uh, bow hunters that you are talking about. It pushes them. Uh, I mean, obviously, those two seasons don't co, co- you know um, coincide, but you know, your still hunters all get pushed onto a very small amount of of land. Um and that just further exacerbates the uh, uh, the access problem. Wow. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That we have that issue in the up with bear hunting. You know, dogs versus guys hunting over bait. Um, but boy, we don't have it, anything like that. No. <laughs> I know. I do remember some southern states. Alabama, I think, was a dog state. Yep. Um, yeah. That, that that's yeah. That's something I can't even speak about because I know absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I can't even fathom hunting where they run dogs. I guess it would depend on how often they did it. Um,
2: uh, I, every day, I, I, every day.
3: Yeah, how often they went through there with the dogs? Because the deer, obviously, they get used to it. You yeah, know, they know how to survive around that. So there's got to be areas where they feel comfortable. I guess, uh, you know, moving during daylight. I don't. I, I don't know. I that'd be tough to speak to
1: because I've never done it. Yeah. They, they get 60 days up here. I think it is. And they, they literally bank every ounce of vacation time. And some of them, uh, even quit their jobs during uh, dog season to, to set up dog camp and they run it sun legal light to end of legal light every day for 60 days. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting. It's really caused me, uh, a lot of lost sleep at night trying to figure out what I'm going to do because, and, and it sounds like you've given me the blueprint. I mean, it sounds like you've, you know, I got to drive, I've got to get away from some of these areas and I need to eliminate public land that doesn't meet the criteria. And, yeah. you know,
3: property has got to meet the criteria. Sure. Property has got to meet the criteria and you have to hunt smart. You know, a lot of people just they'll prep a couple locations. You know, I'll, I'll go into every season with 40 to 50 locations. You know, I may only hunt 10 of them during the course of the season because, you know, if I got 15 locations, 20 locations set up at oak trees or apple trees and then I've got you know um, maybe a couple few scrape areas that I've got set up along the edge of crop fields obviously if the crops are in standing corn where I got security cover butting up to the scrapes and then I got timber on the other side so I got a lot of security cover around the scrapes you know I'll hunt that when it's in standing corn as soon as the corn's down that's done if the apple trees don't produce apples, I'm not going to hunt it that season. If the oaks don't produce acorns, I'm not going to hunt it that season. Uh, a lot of times crop rotations will, you know, this pinch point may be great from a bedding to a feeding area this year because it's a preferred crop field they're going to, but then the next year it's not, so that, that funnel that year is not worth hunting. So while I have, that's the cool thing about hunting out of a saddle, I can have all these trees prepped. I only carry one saddle. I hunt out of it all the time. I don't have to have 50 stands, and so I can go to any one of those trees. I'll usually do a pre-season speed tour where I'm checking to see if which which trees are producing food or which scrape areas might be open because the crops are in the right crops for that particular pinch point, you know, to be working towards the bedding area. You know, I'll, I'll do a speed tour with my scent lock on, so I'm not going to leave a lot of human odor. And, uh, you know, check that stuff, and that will kind of dictate which trees I hunt that season. But I have a lot of trees ready, and I hunt them accordingly. Some of them are morning trees. You know, you never hunt an apple tree or a mast tree. If you're in an area where their primary food source is the mast, you know, because there's no ag in the area, you don't hunt those trees in the morning because you're probably going to spook deer with your entry before daylight. There's going to be deer feeding at it. Mm. Same way with an apple tree. You don't hunt an apple tree in the morning because you're going to spook deer when you come in to enter the location, and you may be spooking the deer you're trying to kill. So those are strictly evening locations. You know, some locations are, are strictly morning locations. Some locations are strictly early season locations. You know, you may get some, uh, some mast trees that drop all their mast in uh, September. Our season opens October 1, and by mid-October, all the mast is fell, and it's all consumed by the squirrels and whatever else. So they're strictly early season locations, and then you have other se- other locations that are strictly pre-rut and rut phase locations uh, because they're back, you know, back in the bedding areas, back in the thick stuff. I don't, I don't hunt those during the early season. I save those for all day sits during the rut phases only. So I'm in my tree an hour and a half before daylight, so I'm not spooking anything with my entry, and then I don't leave till a half hour after dark, so I'm not spooking anything with my exit. So I'm in there before they come in in the morning and I'm leave after they've left the bedding area in the, you know, in the evening or right at dark. Um, You know, those are all day sets. Um, So, you know, it's, it's not just hunting. You have to have, you have to hunt strategically. You have to know your entry and exit route for every location. Most of the time your entry is different than your exit. Um, If you're hunting, let's say you're hunting a location that's, Fifty yards inside the timber from a a crop field or an opening you know you're not gonna you know that's if you're gonna enter that spot to hunt it for an evening hunt you're gonna walk through the middle of the crop field because there's no deer in it and then when you get even to where your stand is inside the timber then you make a beeline directly over to the timber line and walk right into your stand you don't walk along the edge of the crop field because you may be spooking deer that are you know, 50 to 100 yards off the crop field in the timber that are just bedding there. So you walk through the middle of the field, make a beeline to your tree, you know, right when you hit that, you know, you're 150 yards out in the field when you see where you got to go in, you just walk right to it, and go in. And then when you exit after dark, because there's going to be deer in the field more than likely, then you exit on the inside of the tree line. You don't walk back out through the field or down the edge of the field. So, you know, locations. If you don't enter them correctly, if you don't exit them correctly, um, you're going to booger them up. You know, the first hunt may be okay, but after that, you're, you're educating the deer. Uh, if you hunt a rut phase location during the October lull, you know, during the time when most of the mature bucks are nocturnal, you know, until the rut phases start, That's why it's a rut phase location. If you hunt them prior to that, what you're doing is you're altering the doe activity. And when you go in and you alter doe activity, obviously then when you continue hunting it into the rut phases, because the does aren't coming in there during daylight hours, they're probably, if it's a feeding location, they're probably still feeding there, but they're coming in after dark. Well, then the bucks aren't going to come in there during daylight either. So, you know, strategically knowing what trees are for what time of day, what time of season, um, you know, proper entries, proper exits, all that stuff matters. Flashlights matter. Matters. Something as simple as the flashlight you use to enter your location. You know, I because I get on stand so early, you know, I'm, I'm usually on stand in my saddle an hour and a half before daylight settled in. I'm done. I'm in the tree and settled in. I'm quiet. And because I hunt so much public land, I see guys coming in. You know, I'll see guys parking, you know, half a mile away because I can see their headlights. And usually during the rut phases, the foliage is down, so I got a really long visual. And they wear these headlamps. They wear these damn, you know, 300-lumen headlights. (laughs) And every time they move their head, their flashlight, their beam is going all over the damn place. And when you're walking into a location, you're always moving your head. And if they think deer can't see that, they're crazy, <laughs> <laughs> because I sure as hell can, and deer got a lot better eyes than me. When I enter locations, you know, in the morning, I've got a single set, one single battery AAA pen light. That's all I use, and I keep it on the ground. Sometimes I even cut my ants around the head, even though it's such a dim beam. I just want it to be bright enough to see my tacks, my next reflective tack. And same thing in the evening. I've watched guys, because I usually sit till a half hour after dark, so I don't spook anything with my exits, because I'm usually back in the security cover. I'll watch guys get out of trees around me on public land. And when you're coming out of a tree with a headlamp on, you're looking down to see where your step is, your head's moving around. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like a beacon at an airport. (laughs) And people just don't. All that little stuff matters if you're hunting mature bucks. All those little tiny details add up to killing. You know, if you do that stuff correctly, every little thing adds up to being more successful.
2: Matter, Matter. especially like when you're saying it, whenever you're trying to go after this deer that's uh, pretty much seen it all (laughs) when they make it to that three and a half, four and a half years old. Yeah,
3: if you were in Iraq in, uh, you know during the war or in Afghanistan during the war and you're in your little military compound, you're going to be extremely cautious when you walk outside that compound because everybody's trying to kill you. <laughs>
2: right.
3: you know, you're going to be very cautious of what you do, and that's exactly what mature bucks that have been shot at before do. They, they are extremely cautious. They don't like to be vulnerable in open areas. They like to have security cover where they got quick exit routes. And it's the same deal as we are, you know, you wouldn't feel, you'd probably feel very comfortable walking through a small rural city in, in Northern Florida, but I guarantee, you know, at midnight, but I guarantee you wouldn't walk through a crime laden area of inner city, (laughs) Chicago at
4: midnight. (laughs) You
3: know, it's the same deal. You just got to put it in the same perspective. You're the same way. They, they, don't mature bucks just don't move in areas where they feel vulnerable unless they're with a the hot dough and they're thinking with other body parts in their brain. <laughs>
1: that gets that gets all males, regardless of species, into trouble. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, that,
2: heck, <laughs> you got that right. Heck, species uh, <laughs> is yeah.
3: irrelevant, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but shoot, da- down here, I've even seen like mature bucks, like. Uh, I've seen where I'm looking kind of in this open area where it's real thick around everywhere, and a doe shoots out into the wide open. And I can hear something behind her. The buck, he's he's running, but then as soon as he gets to the wide open, I've seen them slam, literally slam on the brakes, like look left, look right, and then charge after her again. Like, they're still on alert even when they're chasing does. Like, these older, mature bucks. Like, I'm just talking about lock up the second it goes into the open and then continue chase after that.
3: I was hunting one time on public land in southern Michigan. And, and I, what you said just brought up a memory. And I was in this little, it was a pine plantation and it was spruce trees. So they had, they grew all the way tight to the ground. So it was kind of a, the edge of a bedding area. And there was a weed field, about a 40 acre weed field to the side. And I was right on the edge. And this dough, and around this, around that 40 yard, I'm, did I say 40 acre? I meant 40 yard. <laughs> <and her> <laughs> <laughs> on wide. a little weed field and all around it was just brush and red brush and briars just nasty shit and i'm telling you what this doe i could hear this buck chasing this doe through this brush but it was so heavy i couldn't see and all of a sudden this doe busted out of this, out into that opening and she what, got right out into the middle of that opening and stopped and turned around and looked back and started wiggling, wiggling her tail. And that buck, finally he comes through, and is about 150 inches. I mean, Atlanta, Michigan, that is a boon. That is a major booner, man. That was a monster. And he did exactly what you said, only he didn't step out. He got right to the edge of that brush looked at that doe that doe started twitching her tail like come on come on come (laughs) in there and he stood there for 20 seconds and turned around went right back into the brush and you know what she turned around went right after it he was not he was not coming out into that opening there was no way
4: (laughs) oh
1: Oh, Oh, man Uh, you were heartbroken too watching him go back in there huh (laughs)
3: Oh yeah! Well, I was a little bummed, oh my God, that that was just
1: awesome. <laughs> yeah,
3: not yeah. always about the. It's not always about the kill.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's my catchphrase. <laughs> I think it's a coping mechanism, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and brand it and see if it sticks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, to
3: me, it's never all. I mean, sure. killing is the end game. Uh, you know, most most of the work done, is, most of the kills are the result of good scouting and location preparation and, you know, good general hunting practices. You know, the, the kill is just the end result of all the hard work that went into it.
1: Sure. Yeah.
3: And, you know, they're, and, you know, sitting in... December and you get a fresh snow and you're sitting in a tree and you watch a squirrel come down and make the first tracks in the snow. And, you know, that kind of stuff is just, you know, you can't put a price on that kind of of thing. You know, just watching nature. Sure. is just awesome. So with your... Well, if it was 95 degrees, I don't think. Be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we... we I, ch- can dress, <laughs> I can dress for five degrees. You can't dress for that.
1: <laughs> no. uh, Yeah, I always tell people, you know, uh, you can keep putting clothes on to stay warm when it's cold outside, but eventually I get arrested uh, when I start shedding <laughs> stuff, trying to, to deal with the heat, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs>
3: but, uh, I, I can re... I can remember in uh, 80 degree weather wearing just Scentlock base layers. Because Scentlock base layers, they're like, you know, it's like a ballerina. They're like, they fit like tights. And right. I had camo base layers and that's all I wore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I felt weird in the tree, but it was hot. And that was only 80. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I think yeah. the hottest I've ever hunted was 98, and it was a heat index of 110. And that was just. Wow. I mean, just. It's it's. I can't even fathom that. It's good times. I would
3: just sweat just sitting there.
1: Oh, you do, <laughs> oh, you do. Wow. Yeah, and and it's and, and on on top of that, Florida has got the most unpredictable winds. I, I think uh, anywhere I've been in my entire life because it's so flat and because it's got so many different large bodies of water from the oceans and the large lakes. Sure. I mean, it's just you can you can put milkweed out and you just watch it swirl, <laughs> and and you just know that you're just you're you're playing. You know you're playing the odds that maybe they won't, uh, you know, smell you before they step out, you know, kind of thing. But
3: I I I never understood the milkweed thing. I mean, I, I used to use milkweed in the seventies, uh, you know, just to see which way the wind was blowing before I picked out the tree I was going to hunt. Um, but I, I can't, I don't understand people getting in trees. You've committed to a location and then you drop milkweed. Is it just to know where the deer are going to come from and spook from you? How yeah, <laughs> <probably. laughs> did you know if a deer comes from that direction, he's going to spook? Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you see the wind currents are wrong, what do you do? You get down and move.
2: Yeah, I guess. Other, I guess. I guess yeah. It wouldn't do you any good here. I mean, <laughs> in, in Florida, I mean, like you, mean, it's, there's a lot of areas that's so thick. Like sometimes, like literally, they could come from anywhere. Like sometimes you're like, okay, well, I think they're coming from here. You're playing the wind the best you can, but Literally, I've had deer come from every direction sitting in the tree just because of some of the areas you're in. It's just so thick. You're just like, well, they 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 could come downwind or they they could come upwind. It doesn't really matter um, because there's so much cover. I don't even think. I mean, they use the wind a little bit in some of those areas, but I, there's just so much cover that I think they just feel secure in those areas. So they're. I mean, they're moving in every direction. Yep.
3: Well, most of the places that I, because I pay zero attention to wind anymore, um, you know it it. 50% of the deer that I see are downwind of me. So, I mean, I, that that means nothing to me anymore. But, you know, Michigan, any any state is going to have thermals and and swirling winds. Uh, you know, if you hunt a, if you hunt any any place when the leaves are on the trees, uh any place near an opening, you know, wind hits hits trees with foliage on them and the wind deflects off the leaves, you know, a certain percentage of it will hit the trees and and move down the tree line. And then if it hits a corner, it'll swirl and make a ninety-degree swirl. Or if you're hunting on the side of the hill, you know thermals are going up in the morning and down in the evening, and you'll you'll get swirls because because of the different undulations. Back when I paid one hundred percent attention to wind direction, um, you know I used to hunt saddles, you know down in the bottom of the saddles and sides of ridges, and I and I literally. Probably the last 10 years I, I was hunting the wind, I just quit setting up on ridges, on the sides of the ridges, or in saddles, low ground, because the wind swirling would always crush me. And I, I just got busted so many times. I just quit hunting those. I just quit setting them up. And, uh, yeah, that's that's a big deal when you got to pay attention to the wind. Just imagine being able to hunt and you hunt a location on the merits for when it should be hunted and you hunt it you just go hunt it and you don't worry about the wind direction that's a major major game changer
1: it sounds like a dream two
3: things in my hunting career have changed my success rates. the first one was hunting out of a saddle because hunting out of a saddle blows any conventional stands out of the water and the second one and that was in 1981 the second thing that really changed my hunting kill rate was learning how to hunt with activated carbon scentlock lock clothing. It took me two years to learn how to do it and care for it properly and store it properly and use it properly and what to use in conjunction with it so I didn't have to worry about the wind.
1: I, I, I'm envious of you. I don't know that I'll ever be able to control my set down here.
3: <laughs> you, you probably won't down there. Yeah. I mean, I mean if it were 70 degrees, you could. Sure. Uh, on 80, 80, 90 degrees, yeah, I, I really don't think you could. I, I think it would be – you could definitely knock it down.
1: Sure. Right.
3: You would definitely make it to where you'd be much less of an immediate threat to a deer that did win you. They'd think you're farther away than you actually were because it's not it wouldn't be as strong uh but you i don't think you could totally you know i don't totally eliminate it but i i get it down to where it's you know uh, you know maybe two percent of my odors coming out because even when a got sued and they uh, they took it to court and they sent a clothing to rutgers university you know they proved beyond the ponderance of a doubt that uh, activated carbon, sell like that clothing, absorbed 99 plus percent of all your body odor.
1: Wow, yeah. that's pretty good, but, Chase. Pretty good. It sounds like we just need to move north, is what is what John's <laughs> telling us here. I would,
3: yeah. Well, there is no question if you want to kill bigger bucks, you move north. Also, Florida just has a smaller, sure. you know, it's a more of a smaller deer, yeah, yeah. There's, Yep. There's 17 subspecies of deer, and Florida has one of the smaller ones. You know, you got the Keys of Deer, and then in northern Florida, you've got, uh, I mean, they're bigger, but they're still not as big as what you get up here.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yep. Chase, do We've you got got have uh, any questions for John? Because he has, through through all of his answers, he's hit every, every, every question that I've had thus far.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I, here, yeah, I got I a scenario. It. Oh, go ahead.
2: All right John, well we were talking earlier before the podcast about retirement stuff like that you're like, I don't I don't know if I'm ever gonna retire Well, say you retire from Michigan and you have to move down to Florida and you're gonna pursue <laughs> whitetails. what kind of plan what action plan would you put into place?
3: Well, I'd probably research the counties and see which counties uh, entered the most big bucks because I'm assuming Florida, Um, This is an assumption because most other states have it. I would would assume Florida has some sort of a Mm records-keeping organization.
2: Yeah, we do. We have it. It's called the Buck our big buck registry for Florida. So anything 100 inches or better.
3: Yeah, what I would do is I would research which areas of the state had the best, you know, the most entries. And, you know, I'd kind of gravitate to the public lands or knocking on doors in in those areas. You know, and that's what you do pretty much any place is – you know I live even though I live in northern Michigan which really is sucks for big bucks most of the bigger bucks that do get killed in Michigan are in southern Michigan where there's a lot more agriculture um, you know I, I hunt a lot in southern Michigan you know that's when I said you know most of my hunting spots are two and a half hours away that's that's what I do I drive to southern Michigan so I I would definitely do a little research and and find out where the bigger bucks what counties were best for the bigger bucks and that's kind of what i'd gravitate to i wouldn't just you know my wife would love to move to florida but (laughs) that's so so you're like that buck
2: we mentioned earlier the wife runs down to florida and you're like eh, no i'm gonna stay here you're gonna have to chase me back here (laughs) yeah It just don't look right. It's like, nah, this, this ain't right. I'm not going out in that open area right there.
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind being a snowbird for about two months out of the year. January and February would sound pretty cool.
2: Oh, yeah. It's oh, nice it's in January nice and February here. It would be nice would be, for you. Yeah, it's
3: a lot nicer than here, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No snow. <laughs> well, I did want to mention one thing. I am uh, my son Joey and I, uh, we're coming out with a YouTube channel and you're the first people to hear this.
2: So, Whoa.
3: Wow. Um, we're going to have a YouTube channel. Probably we'll be up by the end of May. We've been doing, uh, quite a lot of filming. So, um, and it's going to be instructional bow hunting. It's going to be called Eberhardt's Outdoors. So, uh, it's going to primarily key on obviously bow hunting for whitetails or deer hunting in general. Uh, but it, it'll it take off into fishing and turkey hunting and a bunch of other stuff because, like, we do all of that stuff. My son stayed limited out on walleyes this morning, and uh, I've shot a turkey. I mean, killing turkeys isn't a big deal anyway. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, it's just something for entertainment. It's going to be primarily, though, on instructional bow hunting, going over, you know, equipment, gear, um, you know, uh, saddle hunting proper ways to use saddles uh, scouting practices um, you know how to prepare locations and, and it'll all be on video so it's not going to be talking about it it's going to be showing it
1: oh man I'm looking forward to that there. yeah well you know if 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 you do get held at gunpoint and you're forced to move to Florida you do get to hunt them for about six to seven months out of the year if that cha- if that helps sweeten the pot for you uh. Not really.
3: <laughs> 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 I didn't think so. I love to fish. Yeah, I love to, I fish a lot. I fish every day. I live on a lake, so this time of year I'm fishing all the time. Nice. Uh, but I know you got great fishing too. So that's yeah, boy, that's yeah, we do have yeah, that. that. Yeah. Yes, you do. A couple fish. Yeah, we're probably the top two fishing states in the country: Florida and Michigan.
1: There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I can't seem to catch him, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, Chase, if you don't have any anything else, I'd like to ask John the the question I like to ask everybody when we send them on their way. Go for it. Go for it. Okay, John, if you had to go back to your earliest bow hunting self, and give yourself one singular piece of advice. That would totally change your path as a bow hunter. What What would you say to yourself?
3: If I had to go back and pick out one thing that has changed my bow hunting in the positive, yep. That's what the question is.
1: Yep. Take it back to your youngest self and say, "and, and say I'm traveling from the future. Here's what's going to change your world. What would you What would you tell yourself?
3: Sunlock. <laughs> it, it'd be a tie between Sunlock and hunting out of the saddle. It, those two have changed my world big time there there is no doubt of my 50 bucks i have in the book if i didn't have access to hunting out of a saddle and using something i could probably be about 10 i i think it's it's that big not having to pay attention to wind is a huge deal and going into the season having 40 or 50 trees prepped and being able to hunt any of them at any point in time that's a big deal sure um you know and also out of a saddle you you know, you can keep the tree as a buffer, basically a blocker. You can move around the tree and shoot three hundred and sixty. It, it weighs two pounds, uh, doesn't make any noise. There's just so many advantages of a saddle and not paying attention to the wind is a total game changer. So it'd be a tie between those two. I,
1: yeah, I think both are solid. And,
3: and if I had to say, if I had to say one thing to the viewing audience that doesn't want to consider either one of those. <laughs> it'd be security cover security cover security cover never dismiss security cover if you're after mature bucks always gravitate to being close to some form of quick security cover because that's what mature bucks like they may move out on the edge of the open of the the edge of security cover but they like to have that quick one bound gone um so security cover, security cover, and that's something everybody can do without having to spend any money.
1: There you go, that's awesome, John. I, I, I. I this will have to be the highlight of my spring going going forth because I read your book and I saw and I felt all those pieces. Kind of, you know, the picture starts to get less less blurry the more time you spend on these things. And talking to you, I was able to pick your brain, and I really just want to thank you for coming on and, and and speaking to myself and the other Southern listeners who. Uh, this will apply, <laughs> apply to. <laughs> maybe maybe together we can bring the AIDS class up. <laughs> AIDS. Awesome. That would be great. Thank That'd you so much, buddy. Okay. I <laughs> appreciate my it, John. Thanks, John. For, thanks for inviting me. Okay. Bye-bye. All